You never got a Colorado license? No, because I was a student. Oh, yeah. I remember they, and they, you got an ID card or something, and they put that you were a boy. <laughs> yeah. No, because <laughs> I lost my driver's license for a period of time. I dropped it in, what's the um, grocery store in Colorado? Oh, King Super. King Supers. I dropped my wallet in a King Supers parking lot. And it was gone for a while. And then, like, I had to go through this whole process of getting my stupid state ID because I was still an, an Illinois resident. Um, and I wasn't going to change to being a Colorado resident. Blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. Um, yeah. And then they said I was a boy. And I <laughs> because they don't send you your card right away. They, like, give you a piece of paper and then they mail it to you. Yeah. And they mailed it to me. And I said I was a guy. And I was like um excuse i called them i was like excuse me this card says i'm a male and it was especially frustrating because i gave them first of all i don't think i look like a boy at all (laughs) i mean like (laughs) i don't so it's not like someone could like look at me and mistake me for a boy but they had my birth certificate that said that i'm a girl i didn't have my driver's license but they had my birth certificate. Yeah, I don't know. I think that the person at the DMV just hated me. Well, because I went in once and I like didn't have the right paperwork. So they were like, come back again. And I was like, literally, I just need an ID so that I can go into a bar um, until I can like go home and get my new driver's license. But then someone found it and... I picked it up from them from a McDonald's and it was really shady. They like found me on Facebook and messaged me and then they tried to get me to join a MLM scheme and I was like well thank you for finding my driver's license but I do not want to be taking this. (laughs) I had a kind of embarrassing moment when I I lost my I think it was either my light I think it was my debit card actually and I lost it outside of a Panda Express because I was craving (laughs) Panda Express but and I didn't realize that I lost it until I got a call from the Aurora Police Department and they're like hey no no I got a call from my bank and they're like hey we got a call from the Aurora Police Department that they found your um that they found your debit card outside of a Weight Watchers (laughs) (laughs) I was like what are you talking about I've never been to Weight Watchers turns out Weight Watchers is like right across the street (laughs) like it was like (laughs) they share a parking lot and I was like oh (laughs) sorry Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. 
If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. So this has been a very, um, I guess... It's stressful been a week, week. <laughs> it's been a week it's been it's been a week and two days i feel like mm-hmm. um but yeah no it has with coronavirus and quarantining and mm-hmm. just dealing with that global pandemic in addition to the pandemic of killing unarmed black people um i feel mm-hmm. like everyone is just kind of like at an emotional high and low at the same Mm -hmm. time right um yeah I don't really have anything super poignant to say other than I believe I speak on behalf of both of us um when we say that yeah killing people in general is wrong <laughs> i think yeah, we say I that say I'm, I'm not too much of a fan of that yeah we say that time and time again throughout our cases but um i think it is especially important to kind of acknowledge the fact that black people in this country are disproportionately targeted are disproportionately killed by law enforcement and when they are killed often by non-people of color, the people who kill them seem to get no consequences. And Mm -hmm. that pisses me off. Mm -hmm. And if you take a look at the news or if you look outside, depending on where you live, you'll see that it pisses off a lot of other people. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I dream of the day when racism and racial inequality is something that is only in a history book um Mm -hmm. I don't know if we're ever going to achieve that in my lifetime but speaking as a woman of color speaking as a black woman I am over it I'm emotionally drained and exhausted Mm -hmm. and though I have never had any um I guess life or death situation with anyone in law enforcement I personally have experienced being marginalized, publicly humiliated, um, completely just, you know, called outside of my name simply because I'm black and I'm, yeah, I'm over it. Like, yeah, I don't know what else to say other than... No, I think (laughs) you're making me cry. (laughs) Oh my God. Uh, sorry sorry. (laughs) but no it's okay it's just like bringing up a lot of feelings for me because I think it brings up you know kind of another perspective like I feel a lot of you know guilt because you know where I grew up was a predominantly white you know neighborhood was very like middle class upper middle class and you know I look back on my past self who didn't necessarily have the right, you know, exposure and experience in life. You know, I consider myself to be like a pretty empathetic person and I care about people and I don't think I ever, you know, mean to hurt anyone. But like back when I didn't fully grasp the understanding 
of, you know, the current situation and, you know, learning so much these past few years. Um, it's just disappointing that people, I mean, just to start, I think I was in a better off position than a lot of people. Um, but just, you know, the lack of awareness, you know, pointing fingers at the wrong group of people during this time. It's just, and not just completely blowing past the core issue. It's just, oh, it's so much. Yeah. And like feeling the stress of like wanting to contribute to the good and the positive. I don't know if you'll keep all this in. I hope what I'm saying is making sense, but, um, yeah, it just brings up like a lot of emotions and then, you know, having to deal with conversations with people I know on the other side where, you know, the main issue isn't what's being discussed and that's incredibly frustrating and terrible and I just, yeah, I, I want to be in the same position as you where we're talking about it as a thing of the history and it was, it actually ties in so well to my case today, which was not at all intentional. We, you suggested, um, one of our friends, Emily in Denver said we should look at women in cults, which like you wouldn't think that that would kind of tie into the current, current like state of everything that's going on. But it's like crazy how relevant my case ended up being. But let's talk about women and cults, the psychology of it and all that. I'll give my notes. I hand wrote these, so there's not very (laughs) many, but um so i was looking at an article and it said research says about 70 percent of cult members are women so across the board we see that there are more women who get involved in cults than than men which you know brings the question why is it that women are are more involved in cults um so there was three you know possible reasons that the article brought up one was that women are conditioned to believe that you know something's wrong with them you know we're taught to be gracious grateful obedient you know we're taught not to hurt other people's feelings so i guess if you're you know contacted by a cult person just because of those social norms you know we don't necessarily want to rock the boat too much um the second is that women have a greater need for spiritual fulfillment So women are more likely to affiliate with religious faith, which um, I guess kind of based on your definition of a cult, there's often a religious aspect to it. Um, And then the last reason is that women, you know, they just do what they know given a history of oppression. Um, So um, something else that was interesting too is that I totally forgot how to look up the pronunciation of this cult i'm sure you saw it as you were like researching and nexium yeah yeah i I listened to allison mack (laughs) yeah i listen there's a whole podcast series on it that's so good i listened to it i think like two years ago um but i already forgot how to pronounce it but it what was interesting in that cult and maybe we'll like cover that someday but i was like ah there's already a podcast on it that i listened to so i know everything um but that they used women to recruit other women. So women are more likely to trust other women. So that's how certain cults will kind of pull people in. 
So I picked a case that I feel like pretty much everyone already knows a lot about, but I think people aren't as aware of the women behind this movement. Um, and as I was reading about it, I was like, I actually don't think I know anything about it besides when I hear Jim Jones, I'm like, okay, Kool-Aid. That's what I know, that a lot of people drink Kool-Aid and then they died. And then there's, you know, the, the phrase like, oh, they drank the Kool-Aid. Yeah, don't drink the Kool-Aid. But that was pretty much the extent of my knowledge on this case. But as I was reading about it, oh my gosh, I was just like, what on, like, this actually happened on this planet Earth? It is appalling. Um, so to start off, I'm doing a brief history on Jonestown, which is what they called their little commune. Um, I guess it wasn't so little. So on November 19th in 1978, 909 people living in a remote agricultural commune in South, in the South American nation of Guyana were led by Jim Jones and his followers in a mass murder-suicide. Jones and his followers encouraged people to drink punch or Kool-Aid laced with poison, and those who didn't do so willingly were encouraged, with finger quotes, at gunpoint. Um, so children made up about one-third of the total number of deaths in this commune. So how the heck did they get here? What events led up to nearly a thousand deaths? The story begins with Jim Jones. So Jim was an extremely charismatic man, as most cult leaders are, who established a Christian sect um, known as the People's Temple in the 1950s. So in the beginning, Jim preached some not-so-crazy ideas, um, like preaching against racism. And because of this, Jim's sect attract men attracted many Black followers who were understandably fed up with the overt racism that was happening all around them. Um, the 1950s marked the beginning of the Civil Rights movement, movement. The fight against racism became part of the American mainstream culture with the landmark Supreme Court case Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954 that struck down the notion that separate could ever be equal. In 1955, Rosa Parks was arrested for refusing to give up her seat on a bus for a white person, which led to a 13-month boycott of the city buses. While people in the 1950s had the audacity to ask to be treated like human beings, more than 100 Southern congressmen banded together to defend segregation. They withdrew their children from public schools, sending them to all-white segregation academies, and in 1956, they signed a segregation manifesto, um, committing to do whatever they could to defend segregation. And then I wrote, I roll, I roll, I roll, in all caps, because <laughs> it's just, oh my gosh, especially with everything going on right now, that's kind of how I felt. And it's just, you know, crazy that all of this didn't go down really all that long ago, like, our grandparents were alive during this. Um, anyway, deep breath. Um, it was said that nearly 80% of Jim's commune was black. So why were black people following this crazy white man? The People's Temple incorporated worship, which included um, information that everyone was familiar with, and it also combined it with political activism. 
the more conservative black churches were led by ministers who encouraged their congregation to just be patient and, you know, let them know you'll have a better life um, and future once you get to heaven, which is, you know, not the message that I think I would want to hear as a person. And understandably so, a lot of other people didn't want to die to, you know, not be killed by other people. Um, So Jones and his wife, they provided meals and home care services to many people who were struggling. And um, he and his wife, Marceline, were actually the first white couple to adopt a, a black child in Indiana in 1961. So, in the end, women greatly outnumbered men in Jonestown, and nearly half the population was made up of black women um, in this cult. So, outside of this, people were in the midst of a post-war boom. Ladies were popping out babies left and right. Construction of interstate highways and schools were kicked into high gear. And the middle class people were rolling in dough. They had much more money available to them than the middle class ever had. And the golden age of communism was upon them. The advice columns in newspapers were encouraging women to not be afraid to marry young and urged women to leave the workplace that they had entered during the past world war and get back in the kitchen. Um, So in 1965, Jim Jones packed up his group and moved west. They started off in Northern California and eventually moved to San Francisco in 1971. It was then that the church started to face a little bit of scrutiny. Jones's organization was accused of financial fraud, physical abuse of its members, and mistreatment of children. Jones got paranoid about all of the media attention, and he said, well, I guess we better go to Africa. So he encouraged his followers to join him, um, saying, you know, this is going to be a socialist utopia. Uh, Long story short, it was not. Members of the group had to work long hours and were harshly punished if they dared to question Jones. What a surprise. (laughs) Not at all. He cut them off from society by confiscating their passports and censoring any letters that members wrote to their friends and family um, back home. Um, Jones was convinced that the government was after him. His paranoia resulted in long late night meetings and he, you know, just continued to spiral more and more out of his control. His uh, mental health was in decline and he was also addicted to drugs, which only made his paranoia worse. So, at this point, you may be thinking to yourself, this is Pink Collar. Why are we talking about this dude so much? And it's true that people often blame Jones almost exclusively for the events that transpired at Jonestown. Jones was also backed by a community... But Jones was also backed by a ruling committee of senior leaders who helped him call the shots. These individuals helped spread the word about the temple and helped keep people in check. So, I mentioned this earlier... But surprisingly, Jim Jones convinced a lady to marry him. Um, Like I said, her name was Marceline, and she was described as a genuinely decent and compassionate person. She met Jones just when um, she was 20 years old. So while 20-year-olds are legally considered to be adults, I think we can all look back at some poor life decisions we made when we were 20. Um, Just psychologically speaking, we know that people's frontal lobes are still developing, And the social climate during this time didn't exactly encourage women to think for themselves. 
Marceline's mother shared that after Marceline received her first paycheck from working at a hospital, this was all back when they were um, living in America, she gave the money to a local widow that had 10 children. Uh, the general idea is that Marceline fell under Jones's spell, but she also called people out and delivered sermons for the cause. However, her son, Stephen Jones, who did not perish during the murder-suicide catastrophe, believed that his mother's true loyalty was with her family and not the cult. This was not the case for the other woman in Jones's life, Carolyn Layton, who was the person that I originally set out to research, but, you know, there was more than one woman that was kind of involved. Um, so while good old Jim was married to Marceline, he was openly infatuated and connected with Leighton. She very much embodied his commitment to the cause and was described as being very serious and stern. A fellow follower, which is a tongue tie, I don't know why I wrote that in there, fellow follower likened Leighton to the American Gothic painting by Grant Wood. So that's the painting where there's like the farm in the background and the farmer man holding his pitchfork and the lady oh, kind yeah. of staring at him. Yeah. But like very serious, very... Looks I like actually... the guy from Babe. Yeah. <laughs> actually, <laughs> I read about it and I think the woman is actually his daughter and not his wife. Or She's like old. It's her uncle or something. I don't know. But it, they're not like husband and wife is what I read. But maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, but like the whole like seriousness and sternness is what this follower was kind of comparing her to. Um, Leighton wrote a memo titled Analysis of Future Prospects where she weighed the pros and cons of moving the community back to America. She was aware of the complaints that were spreading around the commune and she worried about the children being exposed to the media and negative comments about the community if they were forced into the public school system. She also discussed a final stand and how to ensure the deaths of everyone. Leighton was not an innocent bystander um, that happened to get wrapped up in Jones's cause. She was just as much of a perpetrator. So I think that kind of relates to what we were talking about earlier when women's women are kind of like, perpetrators for this cause um, and maybe are used to kind of convince other women of things um, and coincidentally her sister maybe not so coincidentally but <laughs> her sister also lived on the commune her name was Annie Moore Moore was Jones's personal nurse and was described as being very witty and rebellious she was very much a product of the 70s counterculture and truly believed Jones was a force for social change after the mass suicide slash murder there were um, only a few people that had died by gunshot wound as opposed to drinking the poison. And um, two of them were Moore and Jim Jones. Um, so Moore's body was found inside of Jones's cabin along with the rest of his inner circle. She actually wrote a suicide note that showed that she was very much committed to the cause. And I have some excerpts from it that I wanted to read. I have to remind myself to take a breath. I'm getting all heated. Um, but so it said, I am 24 years of age now and don't expect to live through the end of this book. I thought I should at least make some attempt to let the world know what Jim Jones and the People's Temple is or was all about. It seems that some people and perhaps the majority of people would like to destroy the best thing that ever happened to the 1,200 or so of us that follow Jim or 
who have followed Jim. I am at a point now so embittered against the world that I don't know why I'm writing this. Someone who finds it will believe I'm crazy or believe in the barbed wire that does not exist in Jonestown. It seems that everything good that happens to the world is under constant attack. When I write this, I can expect some mentally deranged fascist person to find it and decide it should be thrown into the trash before anyone gets a chance to hear the truth, which is what I am writing about now. Where can I begin? Jonestown, the most peaceful, loving community that ever existed. Jim Jones, the one who made this paradise possible. Much to the contrary of the lies stated about Jim Jones being a power-hungry, sadistic, mean person who thought he was God of all things. I want you who read this to know that Jim was the most honest, loving, caring, concerned person whom I've ever met and knew. His love for animals, each creature, poisonous snakes, tarantulas, none of them ever bit him because he was a gentle person. He knew how mean the world was, and he took any and every stray animal and took care of each one. Which, like, poisonous snakes? Really? I don't think you should be near those. Tarantulas? I don't think I'm that afraid of animals, but I still don't want, like, a tarantula nearby me. Anyway. I'm very afraid of all of those things. Or, like, poisonous snakes. I just feel like it's common sense to not put your, like, finger near a poisonous snake yeah well but apparently they didn't bite him um these people also drank the kool-aid so (laughs) exactly well and here's the thing is if this community was like so wonderful and so great why did you all kill yourselves anyway um so another moving forward a little bit his hatred of racism sexism elitism and mainly classism is what prompted him to make a new world for the people a paradise in the jungle the children loved it so did everyone else there were no ugly mean police waiting to beat our heads in no more racist stares from whites and others who thought they were better no one was made fun of for their appearance something each one had no control over meanness and making fun were not allowed maybe this is why all the lies were started Besides the fact that no one was allowed to live higher than anyone else, the United States allows classism, the problem being this and not the sidetracks of black power, women power, Indian power, gay power. Jim Jones showed us that we could all live together with our differences, that we were all the same human beings. Luckily, we were more fortunate than the starving babies of Ethiopia and the starving babies in the United States. What a beautiful place this was. The children loved the jungle, learned about animals and plants. There were no cars to run over them, no child molesters to molest them, nobody to hurt them. They were the freest, most intelligent children I have ever known. Seniors had dignity. They had whatever they wanted, a plot of land for a garden. Seniors were treated with respect, something they never had in the United States. A rare few were sick, and when they were, they were given the best medical care. Although the rest of the note was written in blue ink, the last line appeared in black. We died because you would not let us live in peace. Signed, Annie Moore. How do you feel about that? I mean, the core of it has ideas that I feel like I could get behind. But based on the information that we have and the fact that everyone ended up dying makes me think that it maybe wasn't so much like that um so people who survived the massacre said that more so the nurse that um she actually played a large role in distributing the poison punch to jones's followers it was so messed up i didn't write this in my notes but 
they would give the punch to the children first. It took them a few minutes to die, and they were just sitting there, like, writhing, and their eyes were rolling back into their head, and then the adults would take the punch. And to me, if you're, she was a nurse, that's, like, against the Hippocratic Oath that you sign, you know, saying not to do harm to other people, and watching her children die in front of you, that's just appalling. Or even other people's children, that would just, it's just horrible. Well, how much does it go against your kind of genetic code as a human to do harm to your child, to kill your child? That is just something that I can't wrap my brain around and I don't want to wrap my brain around. I know it exists out there, but... Also with Moore, she had written a memo prior to the massacre stating they would have to kill many people secretly, perhaps by using gas chambers or poisoning the water supply. Which is just like... What? It just... Is... Like, I cannot wrap my brain around it. It sounds like a dystopian novel it's crazy that this actually happened and then one last piece which makes it even crazier um the final woman i wanted to talk about is maria katsaris she was another one of jones's followers maria's family was really concerned about her they heard rumors about her being in a labor camp when they moved to africa and maria wrote to her family she really you know denied these rumors said they weren't true Um, But she was involved in a plan to hijack a plane and crash it. She even went as far as obtaining her pilot's license. This plan, luckily, never came to be. Um, But, you know, obviously this was long before 9-11. But they were kind of planning for a similar style of attack. And she even had her pilot's license. That's... Do you know, know, like, what they were trying to attack or why? Or is there any information on that? Or, Mm, Yeah, I... So her brother had come to try to take her away from the cult. And I think it had something to do with that. But I didn't get too much into it because I am not a good person. Um, No. (laughs) Because there was, well, because I originally was just going to focus on um, Carolyn Layton. And then there was the wife, and then there was the sister. Um, And so this was kind of just an afterthought that this woman had this plan to do this and had the potential to harm a lot more people. Um, I think if you get more into the Jim Jones case, there was something to do with like a politician was going to come and Mm -hmm. maybe like expose people but because that didn't really relate to the women i didn't research it too much um but i think marie it definitely maria's brother came to try to get her out and then they were gonna like crash the plane or not not good things not i'm just i had no idea that that many people died and the whole I was not aware of kind of the racial implications behind everything or, you know, the cause that Jim Jones really 
Because if you take bits and pieces out of the note written by Annie Moore, I'm like, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. But the whole people dying by drinking Kool-Aid thing, not a huge fan of, you know, cutting people off from their families, taking their passports, forcing them to work in labor camps. Don't, don't want to make people do that, but it was very interesting. It's a weird thing because even as you're reading, like when you read Annie Moore's letter, it just seems so rational. It seems right? so. Yeah. She's not talking about like spirits rising like from the ashes and seeing, you know, just things that just would not make sense. And, you know, it just, it makes sense. Like you understand it. Like we are living in our own crazy times and you hear her say like she, like a utopia who wouldn't want to live somewhere where they did not have to worry about people starving or people Mm -hmm. dying like it just makes so much rational sense but then we look at the execution (laughs) of what happened and it just doesn't it's like two different worlds almost it just does not make sense well it's like the foot in the door technique that we learned about in intro to psychology yeah. It's like you you like these few things and these things make a lot of sense and it would be crazy if you weren't, you know, didn't want to treat old people nicely or didn't, you know. Yeah. But it's just nice fascinating people. that that's something that she would write knowing what was coming. Right. You know, like even knowing what was coming, like that still fell in line with her rational, with her seemingly very rational mindset like at least when she was writing that if you were 100 percent convinced that moving to america being exposed was going to bring harm to people but if you take your own life you end up you know in this eternal paradise if you 100 percent believe that then that would be the rational choice would it not yeah i guess um, do you think they ever made it to their paradise? No comment. <laughs> uh, I, I am not an advocate for taking your own life. So just very sad, very, well, the sad thing is that it sounds like many of these people, many of the followers were such strong advocates for these causes and maybe if they had stayed in america and you know their time and their freedom would be you know not being forced to work in labor camps they may have been able to do more for their cause than if they were isolated and they were away from their friends their family they you know were probably really scared and they didn't have any way out that's and then the guy's like no we're all just gonna die Mm-hmm. What where where are you supposed to go? What are you supposed to do? You don't have any money. You don't have transportation. You don't have your passport. You can't get out of there. Who are you supposed to talk to? Like, yeah. It's sad because it started off. I don't know if Jim Jones's intentions were good. I can't speak for all of his, you know, inner council people. But I think a lot of the followers joined it with good intentions and genuinely wanted to see change in the world in a time that like 
was it that long ago that all this stuff was going on? Um, so, yeah. I feel you, man. And it's like, because you go into it, because like offhandedly you're like, oh, haha, Jim Jones, Kool-Aid. And now I'm like, no, this is terrible. I'm not going to joke about that. That's messed up. So many people died. Um, so I'm doing the case of Magdalena Solis, the high priestess of blood. Um, I find her name very interesting because her last name is Solis, but it's S-O-L-I-S. But I also think that Solis, as in someone who does not have a soul, would also be appropriate for her. Um, mm-hmm. So Magdalena was presumably born, born in Mexico. Um, I wasn't able to find much biographical information on her life, particularly before um, her involvement um, in the cult that we'll discuss. But um, I did find a little bit on Wikipedia. And so... Um, Wikipedia says that she came from a very poor and dysfunctional family and she started working as a prostitute from a very young age as a means of survival. And her brother, uh, Eliezer Solis, was her pimp. Oh, no. Yeah. And so... Kind of like your case where you have to give the history of um, some men first. Um, I am doing that. So in the early 1960s, two brothers, the Hernandez brothers named Santos and Cayetano, arrived in a small town called Yerba Buena, Mexico. Uh, From what I deduced, the brothers were grifters, um, petty criminals that moved through Mexico, lying, running scams, and stealing to make their living. In this town, the Hernandez brothers decided to run a scam that involved telling the villagers, most of whom were illiterate, uneducated, and severely poverty-stricken, that they, the brothers, were prophets of the powerful and exiled Inca gods of the mountains. Um, And they claimed that these gods could grant them an insane amount of wealth. Due to these villagers' desperation and lack of education, they were unaware of the fact that Inca is actually of Peruvian origin and that if they had gods living in their nearby mountains, those gods would be Aztec. Um, Still, the villagers obliged the brothers and became followers of the Hernandez brothers' cult. They cleared out several caves on the mountainside, which became the temples that the brothers used to host their elaborate rituals. Uh, So the villagers, men and women, became human sex toys for Santos and Cayetano. Yeah. Uh, And they so the villagers served as sexual sacrifices in the hope that the gods would reward them with fortune. Three months went by. And nothing happened. No one got richer. No one's quality of life improved. They were now just being sex sacrifices um, on a regular basis. And so the brothers were worried that their scam cult situation would fall apart. And so they turned it into somewhat of a commercial enterprise. 
So Santos and Cayetano recruited Magdalena and her brother slash pimp, Eliezer, to pose as mystical Inca gods and tempted the villagers with a promise of wealth in exchange for their undying loyalty and sexual servitude. And so basically they created this like elaborate situation in which the brothers introduced Magdalena and Eliezer to the villagers in the cave temple and like Magdalena and Eliezer would apparently appear in a flash of like powder induced like cloud of smoke like a magician yeah which I guess was really convincing because people genuinely believed that um Magdalena and Eliezer were uh gods of the mountain um Inca gods of the mountain And so the villagers then were told to make financial offerings. So whatever little amount of money that they had, they handed it over to Magdalena and Eliezer in a ritual. Again, uh, they promised that the offering would result in treasure and wealth magically appearing in the caves for the villagers. Um, Again, that never happened. Um, but they still continued being like loyal followers and members of this cult. Um, and they would participate in all of the rituals. Um, some of the sources I found weren't necessarily the most like robust. And so one source said that the Hernandez brothers realized their scam cult, um, had gotten out of hand. And so they decided to leave the village. Another cult said that they stayed, but stepped down, I guess, as leaders. Um, regardless at this point, uh, Magdalena took over the cult. Um, or she took over as leader of the cult and became the high priestess of blood. And it seems like at that point, instead of posing as gods, her and her brother both became like high priests and high priestess. So um, I guess to give them a little bit of humanity, since they can't, they probably couldn't keep up the the guise of being a god. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so... She, Magdalena, continued with requiring sexual sacrifices and promises and giving them promises of wealth. And again, nothing continued to happen. And so the villagers remained extremely poor. And some of them began to question if the gods and what the high priest and priestess were telling them were real. And so when people began to doubt Magdalena, uh, she claimed that they were unbelievers and thus needed to become human sacrifices to please the gods. Um, So the first two dissenters were hanged. And then over the course of six weeks, um, six to eight other villagers uh, who were also vocal about their about their doubts became human sacrifices during the rituals to please the gods. Uh, so after each kill, um, Magdalena got increasingly, I guess, more cruel, sick, I don't know, with her crimes. And so she started with lynching, uh, the first two, and then it turned into a ritual beating in which she had all of the followers of her cult participate in beating people to death, um, And then it went from just a ritual beating to a ritual beating, burning, cutting, and maiming. 
So every so she would have all of her followers actively participate. So um, whether that means they participated in the beating or each one took turns like cutting someone or maiming them. Um, She yeah. And then soon she evolved to bloodletting. And so she basically was like draining people. Um, she was draining the human sacrifices, I guess, the victims of their blood. And she would have the villagers collect and drink the blood of the person that they had just Ew. sacrificed. Yeah. So Magdalena and Eliezer would mix the human blood with animal blood, marijuana, and peyote. Oh and have God. everyone drink from the chalice. And obviously, you give someone peyote, they're going to kind of, mm-hmm. like, go down a little trip, I guess. Um <sighs> Yeah, and she told them that they needed to drink the blood in order to stay young forever and get the gods to bless them. And so, um, again, she continued to, like, I don't know if I should say evolve or devolve, um, but the rituals just got even worse. And so she went as far as vivisecting the hearts of of her human sacrifice victims and so i was not familiar with vivisecting like secting what that means yeah and so i don't like it already i mean i could tell based on secting and dissecting it meant cutting or something but apparently it is exposing someone's heart while they're still alive what yeah um and so that became part of the rituals of the human sacrifices. Again, all of these villagers are now these like loyal believers and they think that the gods are going to, you know, get them out of their horrible, like poverty stricken um, situations. And still at no point has Magdalena done anything to help uh, the financial situation of any of these uh, villagers or her followers. Um, and so in May of 1963, a 14-year-old boy named Sebastian Guerrero, who didn't live in that particular village, but he was from the local area, was just exploring the mountainside. And he um, started hearing some noises and like seeing like flashes of light and things like that. And so he like kind of followed the noise and he came across the I cave. I don't like where this is going. He came across the cave that the cult was using as their temple and he actually saw Magdalena and her followers performing a human sacrifice ritual and I believe it involved drinking blood. Um and he literally ran away. He ran 15 miles away from Yerba Buena to the nearest police station, which was in another village called Via Gran, and told the officers that he saw vampires in the cave. Like, he's a 14-year-old boy, so he's like, I don't know, people are drinking blood, these are vampires. Mm -hmm. And they... It sounds like all of the police were kind of doubtful when a little kid runs in. Of course. I mean, he's 14, but a kid is like, hey, vampires. They're like, okay, buddy. Um... But I guess um, Sebastian was very adamant. And so the following day, one officer, Luis Martinez, or Luis Martinez, had Sebastian take him to the cave. And that was the last time either of them were ever seen alive. Oh, no. Yeah. So when Sebastian and Luis went missing, uh, policemen and soldiers were were dispatched to Yerba Buena. 
and Magdalena and her brother were arrested. Uh, at the time, they were arrested because they were found in possession of like an insane amount of marijuana. And um, the authorities kind of went searching near the cave and they found um, Sebastian and Luis's bodies mutilated along with the bodies of six other sacrifices. Um, so Magdalena and Eliezer were both charged only for killing Sebastian and Luis because the members of the cult were still so loyal to them that they refused to give any statements or testimonies that would implicate Magdalena or Eliezer in any crime. Um, in addition, they, oh, they also were found um, guilty and sentenced to 50 years in prison. 50 years, like, total? Yeah, 50 years total. That doesn't seem like enough. I mean, I guess it's because they were only charged with two. I don't, we, yeah, we both yeah. don't really know how sentencing works. But. We need to get my sister and she's like, oh, if you have any legal questions, just let me know. And I always do, but I never remember. You can ask, uh, Becca, let us know next time. Well, yeah. I understand. I I guess I don't want to, you know, killing a person. It I guess it depends on the type of killing it was. If it was kind of like a heat of the moment thing, but it's like hard to say, you know. And I'm not a lawyer. I'm not you know involved in the justice system. Um, in any way but 50 years does not seem like enough for killing a child and a certain person in such a inhumane manner I guess all killings are inhumane in a sense but it just seems like 50 years is not enough for a killing of that kind well and yes I guess you have to consider that the other people but, like, how could you not consider them? I, whatever. Yeah. No, I totally, Whew. I totally agree. 50 I, years, I not don't, enough. I don't think that 50 years was enough for, um, for both Magdalena or Eliezer. Um, the interesting thing is that other members of the cult were arrested because when the police and soldiers arrived, they engaged in a shootout with them. Um, and so once they were arrested, they were charged with the murders of the six other bodies that they found. Mm-hmm. And so I don't understand why they, why the other, I guess the cult members or the followers, um, who they themselves, I think were victims, um, mm-hmm. why they were charged with the six bodies, but Magdalena and Eliza weren't. Um, but those people who were charged with the murders of the other six people, um, they each were sentenced to 30 years in prison. And so that's also weird to me that, but I guess the charge with them was, um, killing in the form of a mob. And so I don't know if that means it's dispersed. The, the time, (laughs) the sentencing is like evenly distributed, but, um, see to me in that situation, there's other considerations, like you were saying, like taking into account that if the people were, you know, kind of coerced by this higher power, um, perceived higher power, uh-huh. or, you know, how much did they actually, would they have 
killed someone on their own outside of these influences and you know how much did people actually like do the final like what who actually ended up killing this person i guess yeah i'm sure it all gets very sticky and there but to me that makes slightly more sense than you know having the the mob mentality which i think is a big factor and considering you know that um these people were not were kind of in like an underserved area maybe did not have access to like education and were very much like high risk for being influenced by yeah someone who was promising them wealth and happiness essentially I think that that is a really important point because being uneducated like more often than not is not your fault right right? it's a it's a product like you are a product of your environment in that case and these people obviously were so deeply like like most of them couldn't read Mm -hmm. and they were just severely uneducated and so poor and you're preying on the literal desperation of people who have no other option in life. They right. like they can't wake up tomorrow and say, mm, "I'm gonna just go be well, a right. lawyer." They, like, well, they don't good. have anything to lose. Yeah, and so I feel like that also it just makes it that much worse in a way for me, like to literally prey on people who just don't know any better. But I also, you know, based on my unprofessional knowledge of serial killers and you know just as a woman who she was a child prostitute she was sexually abused as a child forced to do that against her will i can kind of see you know where someone would become incredibly frustrated incredibly you know disillusioned where maybe she was kind of thrust into this position of power and that power got to her where in it makes it follows you know like serial killers start off by doing little crimes that go into bigger crimes and you can tell and like that's what the kind of techniques that they use in profiling of serial killers is you can tell the difference between somebody's first murder and when they're like many murders in so it definitely followed the pattern of of what you were saying but i can see where she was kind of led in this direction where maybe if she wasn't exposed to all these all this trauma as a child maybe if she had you know the right influences that it wouldn't have ended up this way it was just that's so that's actually something that I thought of mm-hmm. um, when I was doing the case is just really thinking about somebody from the time of being a child, like her brother becomes her pimp. She is now a prostitute, presumably her, you know, quote unquote clientele, who I will call abusers, mm-hmm. um, were men. And now for the first time in her life, she's given power and the only people in power that she's ever seen in her life have mm-hmm. only ever done horrific things to her. Right. Um, and it's almost like wonder, like could, like, yes, I do believe that there's more psychopathy and 
other things at play in terms of just how horrific like her crimes were right but just like i wonder like i think that it clearly had like what her her experiences clearly had an effect on what she thought power was and what power right it was like a perfect storm right of all these things that lined up and you're absolutely like she did not have to end up that way i think that it could have taken a very different direction where you know maybe those experienced experiences kind of forced her to be more empathetic or you know want to make more positive changes so i think that there's something innate there something that you know kind of pushed her over the edge in that direction based off of her traumatic experiences but i also think it's something that could have been prevented if there was intervention early enough yeah and so um magdalena's release date um given that she was sentenced um like i guess in the 60s would have been in 2013 oh wow um however from what i have found no one knows if she was released or um is possibly still serving time it's not uncommon for people um who are serving like really really long sentences to have more time added um based on behavior or other things um uh that have happened i guess but as far as i can tell no one knows where she is they don't know if she's in jail they don't know if she's out living they don't know if she's dead well that's reassuring Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.